All right, shocker. I had to split the iron episode into two episodes um, because we hit like over 45 minutes and I'm like, I still have a lot to cover. So the first episode ended up being all about the basics and the foundations of iron, how we store it in the body, what it does, how we recycle it, copper's role in iron. And then in this episode, we're going to dig more into anemias and then iron overload. And then I have a ton of Q&A questions that I'm going to answer for you guys. So let's go right into it. If you didn't listen to part one, this probably won't make sense. So make sure you listen to part one first. Um, now that you know we've covered copper and its role and how the body regulates iron and how much we need in a day, we talked about the RDA in that episode. Let's get into the different types of anemias and then I'll go to overload. But I'm, I'm breaking down to three categories. There's even some I'm not covering in here, believe it or not. Um, so we're not going to go into like an insane amount of detail, but I like to break it down into macrocytic, microcytic, and normocytic anemias. Um, I think when people hear anemia, they think it's only iron deficiency anemia, but it's not, but it doesn't mean it doesn't impact red blood cells, hemoglobin, and iron status. So this is why I think iron is very nuanced, and I think that we can't live in the extremes. So macrocytic anemia, what the heck is that? It's basically causes really large red blood cells, and they can't carry enough oxygen throughout the body. So the symptoms are similar to other kinds of anemia, and I think this is what makes anemia confusing because a lot of symptoms are the same, but it's based on a different root cause. So we can identify a macrocytic anemia, the large red blood cell, if we have an MCV I think it's like mean corpuscle volume of 100. So that if you get a CBC, complete blood count panel, then you'll get an MCV measurement. If it's over 100, that's a sign of macrocytic anemia. There are a couple causes. One is a folate deficiency. So this often is like you may not have enough in your diet or you could have an increased need in pregnancy and you were already deficient or close to being deficient. So folate deficiency can cause a high MCV, can cause fatigue, like symptoms like iron deficiency anemia. Vitamin B12 deficiency is another one. Um, there's often, there can, it can be related to a couple of things. It could be that you do not have adequate stomach acid or intrinsic factor, um, poor digestion, and you can't absorb vitamin B12. Definitely part of it. Um, so like if you don't, you know, digestive juices, or if you're not eating those foods, obviously, um, it's in animal foods. You can also have pancreatic insufficiency. So in pernicious, it could be like an autoimmune thing. So like in pernicious anemia, our parietal cells that release intrinsic factor are destroyed by the immune system. It's like a whole autoimmune process and that impairs the absorption of B12. So it sometimes this macrocytic anemia could be from a folate deficiency, a B12 deficiency, which may be from the diet, digestion, or an autoimmune issue. And something that you tend to see with the macrocytic anemias is you often see high homocysteine levels with the folate and B12 deficiencies. So that's something that you can like look out for. You can also have this, these symptoms in the high MCV if we have alcoholism, hypothyroidism, or certain prescription medications, they can all contribute. So that's macrocytic anemia. And that's when we have other B vitamins involved, not necessarily iron. Um, 
the tricky thing is you can have multiple types of anemia at once, but this is a really common one. Microcytic anemia is the opposite. It's when we have MCV of less than 80. So this leads to a lack of hemoglobin and it causes us to divide more red blood cells to try to maintain the hemoglobin concentration. And so instead of the macrocytic where we have these big red blood cells that are not transporting oxygen properly, we have smaller, paler red blood cells um, and things are being broken down. So microcytic anemia can 100% be caused by iron deficiency. Typically, you'll see an MCV less than 80. You'll see a serum iron that's low, and you'll see a transferrin saturation, which is sometimes put on there as iron saturation that's also low. Um, so that and ferritin tends to be low too. And then what you'll typically see is TIBC, total iron binding capacity, is high, meaning there's not iron bound because it's got plenty of slots open. So basically everything is low except for the TIBC. That can be a sign of iron deficiency anemia. This is when you can get the smaller, red, paler red blood cells. Um, I think it's really important to still look at copper and vitamin A for this because you need to make sure that you can get that iron that's stored in your tissues out, right? We And so we would be looking at things like do you have enough copper and vitamin A in your diet? Do you have um, adequate whole food vitamin C? Are you super duper stressed? Like, are you at the you know end stage of exhaustion? And how are your adrenals functioning? Because that's going to play a big role if you can make that ceruloplasmin, which helps get that iron out of our tissues. Um, it transports that electron. So we still want to look at all these other factors before or during some sort of increase in iron intake. I would always address this with food first. I think it's so important to do that, um, especially like your first line of defense. Are you eating these foods? How is that person's digestion? And then look, you can definitely, obviously those are kind of like the foundational things. You'd always want to address those. And then you also want to look at, is there a recent blood loss? You can have iron deficiency related to like significant blood loss. Did they donate blood recently? You want to wait eight weeks to retest, um, to test your iron panel after a blood donation to get like an accurate picture. Um, but if they've had a blood loss, they have GI bleeding. Iron deficiency is very heavily associated with people with like inflammatory bowel disease. So you'd want to look at like a deeper root cause. Um, like a heavy period could definitely be one of them, blood loss in general. Um, but a heavy period would be defined as losing more than a third cup or 80 milliliters of blood each cycle. Um, I would say it, like a longer heavy period is probably going to be much more likely to lead to that. And the clients that I've seen that have like even some bleeding outside of their periods are clients with fibroids and polyps. And so those can definitely lead to more blood loss, of course. And then that could lead to like a true, true iron deficiency. I still almost always see some sort of other imbalance with these clients. Like for example, fibroids, polyps, there's almost always a thyroid connection because thyroid is very tied to estrogen. And if we have estrogen excess, that can, those estrogen, um, it, it increases a certain protein that can bind to thyroid hormone. And then you have less bioavailable thyroid hormone. What helps make ceruloplasmin? T3. So everything is always connected. I think when we start to 
think like, oh, well, I only have an iron deficiency. I don't have copper and retinol deficiencies, but it's like, well, how's your thyroid function? Um, we should always be trying to connect these dots and look at the body holistically, especially since it's like, well, we probably have enough iron stored. Why can't we get out of tissues? That doesn't necessarily mean that we should never like try to increase our iron intake or maybe even use like a whole food supplement, like the ones I mentioned in the previous episode, but you still want to take into consideration, but how do I correct this long term? Because supplementing with iron can be inflammatory and cause more oxidative stress in the body. And, you know, depending on the person, I just think like, you know, if I have someone with polyps and they have excess estrogen, like I don't want to add more fuel to that fire, um, especially with estrogen, it can lead to increasing iron even more. So um, that's just something to consider when it comes to uh, looking at iron deficiency anemia and the major root causes, but like recent blood loss, blood donations, GI bleeding, really heavy periods, fibroids, polyps. I, I have seen it with some clients with endo, but I'm like very cautious with iron and endo because iron is like, it's, there's some studies that show it. There's like a connection to endometriosis. Um, and of course you wouldn't want to cause more inflammation for those clients because they're already dealing with enough inflammation. Um, so that's like the big things that we'd want to consider with an iron deficiency anemia, but basically everything looks low, but TIBC is high. Um, so that's one type of microcytic anemia, sideroblastic anemia. This is characterized by defective protoporphyrin synthesis. It's basically, it's preventing the formation of heme. So it leads to an issue with hemoglobin. And the iron portion of hemoglobin is like totally fine. It's not necessarily like an iron issue. It's a heme issue. And this leads to iron building up in the mitochondria and it creates sideroblasts. Um, a lot of this is, there's typically like a genetic root cause where there's an issue in the enzyme ALAS. Um, but it can actually, we can acquire a sideroblastic anemia through alcoholism, lead poisoning, or vitamin B6 deficiency. Because just like, you know, if, if there's a genetic defect in that ALAS enzyme, we can also have a defect in that enzyme without vitamin B6 because it's a cofactor. So sideroblastic anemia um, definitely can cause issues. It's basically leading to a lack of hemoglobin. Iron status is fine, but you could look at B6 deficiency and you could look at possible genetic issues. Mm -hmm. And then thalassemia. I mean, I can't tell you how many clients I've had with thalassemia. Um, there's different types. It is uh, an inherited genetic mutation that impacts the globin gene. And there's different, they're classified into different types. Like there's an alpha or a beta, and that tells you what gene is affected. And there's also like the severity. So there's major, minor, or trait. Um, so like, for example, you'll get like thalassemia, beta, minor. Um, I get a lot of, or beta thalassemia, minor. I get a lot of like alpha thalassemia traits. I've had a lot of alpha majors and minors and a lot of beta thalassemia minors in clients. Um, as far as like who's most likely to struggle with this specific genetic trait, it's most frequently is occurring in the Mediterranean, African, Western, and Southeast Asia, India, and Burma. And the reason that it's primarily occurring in those populations is because thalassemia can be protective against a specific type of malaria. So in, in those populations, it's the same populations that you would see more malaria in. And so it's like this genetic 
like evolution that has occurred for these populations where their bodies I mean, I think it's kind of cool when you think about it. Their body's literally trying to protect them from malaria so they can survive, which is why it's increased and more people have it. It's because it helps increase survival. So it's going to get passed on more. Um, what you're going to see with this for labs is typically an MCV that's 80 or lower, like less than 80, a normal ferritin often, um, and then you'll have abnormal hemoglobin molecules. So it could be like the shape, you could have low levels, um, and then positive genetic testing. Because the genetic testing for this is like pretty easy to get. Uh, you can definitely ask your doctor. I would just say like this is under the microcytic anemia section, but this is you have to be very careful with iron and the thalassemia population. And I don't think that it matters the alpha or beta or the major minor or trait, like the severity of it. You have to just look at the person and their labs. Um, but a lot of them struggle with too much iron, not too little. But hemoglobin is still impacted. So often they're going to, like their doctor might still say, take an iron supplement. Um, most of these people, if it is major or minor, often will do blood transfusions. If it's major, it's usually from the time that they're a small child. And so Typically, they'll also take iron chelators on a regular basis so that they don't get iron overload. But thalassemia, it's a microcytic anemia. Iron's not the issue. It's the hemoglobin that's the issue. Um, and we need to be very careful with iron with this population because it's typically that they have too much, not too little. Then finally, normocytic anemia. So we went through macro, which is like nutrient deficiencies, folate, B12, possibly B6, and then um, microcytic, which is we went through iron deficiency, sideroblastic, which could be genetic, could be B6 deficiency, could be alcoholism, and then thalassemia, which is technically an anemia, but we got to be careful with iron. Um, for normocytic anemias, we're going to go through anemia of chronic disease, and then we'll talk about sickle cell anemia, um, and then hemolysis, and that's it, because we could we could go through a lot of these. Um, so with the normocytic anemia, MCV is normal. It's 80 to 100. And the red blood cells are not altered. The decrease in hemoglobin is the main concern. And it's either from destruction of red blood cells, which is hemolysis, or it's from underproduction of normal red blood cells. So it's either we're breaking them down or we're not making enough. Um, and when it comes to anemia of chronic disease, I think this is such an important one to highlight because a lot of, I've, I have a lot of clients with autoimmune conditions that have definitely struggled with this. Even though I think of like when I was in school to be a dietitian, they're like, this is so rare. You're never going to see it in practice. And I, I mean, I see it on a regular basis, so I would have to disagree with that. Um, but basically what happens, this can occur if there's an underlying chronic disease. It could be some sort of malignancy, so like related to cancer. It could be a chronic infection. I've seen it with Lyme before. It could be an autoimmune condition that makes the liver produce too much hepcidin um, or not enough. Uh, but this can lead to iron hiding in ferritin and it reduces the bioavailability in our blood. Remember, ferritin is supposed to be inside the cell. So don't when I say ferritin, don't always equate it to blood levels. Think of like, oh, that's how we actually have iron stored in our cells. It's bound to ferritin. Um, so what often happens for anemia of chronic disease, it starts out as a normocytic anemia. So it has a low MCV, but it can 
MCV, but then it can progress to a microcytic. So, um, or a normal MCV, and then it progresses to a microcytic, which is a low MCV. So it, that's the other thing is like a lot of these can start out one way and eventually they can look like an iron deficiency anemia because they're not being treated properly. Um, a lot of providers, again, they say it's rare. I don't agree with this. I think it's very common with autoimmune conditions and like Lyme, especially like chronic Lyme. Um, what you're often going to see is low serum iron, low iron saturation or transferrin saturation, sometimes it's called, high ferritin, and then a low TIBC. So low TIBC means that there actually is a lot of iron bound. Um, there's not a lot of spaces for iron left. So people see this and sometimes if you don't look at ferritin and you're only looking at iron or iron saturation, it can be very confusing. You might think I need an iron supplement, but in reality, you look at that ferritin, it's high and that's a sign that your body is, there's a lot of inflammation present. Um, there, there could be some, if you have, if it's chronic infection, it could be related to bacteria, pathogens as well. Uh, and it's not necessarily that you need more iron. It's that we need to understand, like, why is iron being sequestered to the tissues? Why can't we get it out? And you, I would still want to address all the other areas, but I would really take a close look at inflammation for these people um, and, like, what where that's happening in the body and chronic stress. So I think a lot of times we want to, like, skip over the foundations, but for these kinds of populations, I think it's even more important to get the foundations in place, especially if there's an autoimmune component, because chronic stress is what eventually will lead to a, an autoimmune disease. So that's something that like we always need to address. Um, and it just kind of depends on like what their main concerns are. But if the, you know, this kind of client were taking iron because they had low hemoglobin levels, I would say, you know, there are studies that show that cod oil can help with hemoglobin levels. So maybe we try that instead um, or upping retinol-rich foods uh, or maybe we just focus on increasing iron through food. If there's some sort of autoimmune component, there's almost always a digestive and gut issue. And so that's like another area that's so important to address. Like how are, is your digestion? Are you breaking down your food properly? How is your gut health? Um, I almost always do a GI map with clients that have autoimmune conditions especially if it's like not under control because we want to get a better look at like what is going on, what's impacting your immune system because that is going to impact inflammation in the body. And then of course that's going to impact like thyroid health, iron status, um, adrenal health, so many different things. So that's anemia of chronic disease. Pretty much everything is low, but ferritin is high. Um, you can also have a normal MCV. Sickle cell anemia. Um, this can occur for those that have sickle cell disease or trait, and it's associated with the deformation of red blood cells into a sickled shape. Um, this typically occurs due, due to a mutation in the beta globin chain of hemoglobin. And what happens is it causes valine, which is an amino acid, to replace glutamic acid. And sickle cells actually, it's typically the most common with African and Caribbean ancestry. Um, but I mean, it's not, I, I've, I've had Asian clients that have sickle cell. My husband has sickle cell. He's Puerto Rican. I, I'm like, you can, it, it's not like, doesn't really matter. Like anyone can have it. Um, but typically you're not always tested for it unless you have a family member with it. So like his mother has it. So that's how we found out that he had it. Um, my daughter also has it. Uh, so that's fun. But um, with sickle cell disease, 
you have two abnormal sickle cell genes. With the trait, you have one abnormal sickle cell gene and one normal hemoglobin gene. And they say that the, the sickle cell trait population doesn't usually have symptoms, but I mean, it kind of depends on like what you're reading, but um, it's typically under chronic stress is when the symptoms could occur. And I definitely have seen this in my husband. I remember we used to think he had blood sugar issues, but it was actually like a tissue oxygenation issue because his blood sugar was fine. So that was like a whole. And then that's when we figured out he had sickle cell trait. I was like, are you kidding me? You have sickle cell trait. How do we not know this? Um but I do, I did, when I was doing a bunch of research for the zinc deep dive episode, um, I've always focused on copper, retinol, and then like thyroid and stress for sickle cell trait for him and I, to optimize iron status and like hemoglobin and everything. So that has always worked really well for him. When I was doing research for the zinc episode, I came across all this information on how zinc deficiency is like one of the major contributors to to sickle cell anemia. And I was like, what? I I mean, I had never even like heard of that. Um, But it's interesting because when he doesn't get enough iron rich foods, which are also very rich in zinc, he'll have symptoms come up. And a lot of that for him is like uric acid buildup. Um, and that's like one of the things that you can measure if you want to see like what's going on with sickle cell anemia. So you can have higher serum uric acid levels and that's due to an increase of lysed red blood cells. So broken down red blood cells. And there is, there are some associations. I don't know how there's not more research on this, but there are some studies that, and one of them I linked that show sickle cell anemia is related to gout. Because forever we thought he had gout, but I think, I don't think he just has gout. I think the root cause of that is the sickle cell. I don't, I mean, sometimes if you do blood work, sometimes he looks anemic. When he's home and eating well, he's fine. But if he like deploys or something, or if he's away at a training and he can't eat the way that is optimal for him, then typically that's when he'll get symptoms or if he's under a ton of stress, like that sort of thing, like not getting enough sleep, all that kind of stuff. The uric acid will build up. He'll get the gout symptoms in his toe. And yeah, we always thought it, we thought for so long he had blood sugar, insulin stuff, but like all the testing that we did showed otherwise. And then finally I came about the sickle cell anemia and how uric acid levels are increased. Um, and then, of course, uric acid is one of the major contributors to gout in uh, the crystallization and stuff in the joints. So if you have gout and you also have sickle cell, it could be related. Um, the other thing that you can see with sickle cell anemia is a really high reticulocyte count because basically your bone marrow is trying to compensate. It's trying to catch up. And so you'll have a higher reticulocyte count, higher serum uric acid levels, and then sometimes low iron because of breaking down red blood cells. Remember, red blood cells are supposed to live for 120 days, but if they're being broken down, um, that's more iron that's going to be lost in the urine. And so you can definitely look for, you can definitely see like iron deficiency stuff. And so, yes, like for my husband specifically, adding more iron-rich foods in the diet, which now I'm wondering, does zinc impact that Um, after like doing all that research, uh, but also focusing on copper and retinol. Like beef liver is a staple for him. Cod liver oil is a staple for him. Um, That's just what has worked. Talk with your provider, please. I'm just sharing like what's worked for my husband. A lot of people ask me about sickle cell and because I've mentioned that my husband has it before, Um, but a lot of it is managing chronic stress, 
diet, trying to get those foods. We're going to work on a different plan for the next deployment because he ended up having some gouty stuff again. Um, it's just so hard because you don't know what kind of food they're going to have access to. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's definitely like it makes me think, could it possibly be more of a zinc thing because we don't store zinc? Uh, and that's really like the only thing that is really hard for him to get when he's deployed. So who knows, but we'll experiment and I'll share. But yeah, that's sickle cell anemia. Sometimes there is a true iron issue, but we have to look at other areas as well. And I feel like for this population, especially, it's so important to have adequate copper and retinol because that's what helps them get the iron out of storage because they need that ceruloplasmin. If you can't get that, that can definitely lead to iron deficiency um, and not having enough iron available in the system. So those are the things that you'd want to look at. And then finally, the last normocytic anemia is hemolysis. And this is a type of anemia that's caused by the destruction of red blood cells. It increases the breakdown of hemoglobin. It causes low hemoglobin levels. It's typically what you're going to see. And that's kind of like how this would be classified. And it, it's similar to sickle cell anemia where it's your bone marrow tries to compensate. And so you have a higher reticulocyte count. Um, it can be caused by autoimmune conditions. So again, this is why you, you got to compare like anemia of chronic disease. You'd still want to look at, could this possibly be more that you're breaking down red blood cells. So you would want to compare it to the reticulocyte count. Um, auto genetic disorders, chemical exposure, certain prescription meds, and then infections. So there's definitely a lot of overlap with different types of anemia. But I hope that you understand that copper and vitamin A are still a component of many of these because we still need that ceruloplasmin to get that iron, convert it, get it to transfer and get it into circulation. And then like chronic stress, digestion, uh, your gut health, any like pathogens, those are all still going to be something that we want to consider no matter what type of anemia. Because again, like we don't, we, we don't want to skip the foundations and the basics because that's what that's going to impact all areas of health. And I think this goes back to like looking at the person as a whole um, and not just getting so caught up in a, like one lab value or a few lab values. Uh, you have to like keep everything in mind. So I would still look at, no matter what type of anemia, do they get enough of like iron, retinol, and copper in their diet? Are they are they vegan or vegetarian? That's going to be something you want to consider. Um, if they if it's B twelve, like do they have low stomach acid or poor digestion? Do they have copper imbalances? I always look at like the history of the birth control pill that increases um, bio unavailable copper levels in the body. Copper IUD, which I have a whole podcast episode on. That can increase inflammation in the body. Um, zinc supplementation. Please look at zinc supplementation. That can cause copper deficiency, less bioavailable copper, and then that can lower iron levels. So that could be like a very easy fix for someone. Um, lack of folate-rich foods in the diet, if it's one that's related to a folate deficiency. And then chronic inflammation. This is a huge one. I, again, I think it's important when it comes to any like iron issue, um, but that can lead to the sequestering of iron and then excess ferritin and then blood loss. Okay, we always want to address that. Heavy periods, fibroids, polyps, those are big. Bleeding in the GI, depending on your health history, and then finally genetics. So like we have to always address the basics, always address food and digestion and gut health. And then I think that's when you can look further at like, is there another big root cause we need to consider? Um, 
genetics is important, but that's one where I'm like, this could be a slippery slope because I think some people think that the other things don't matter if they know the genetic piece. Um, genetics doesn't always confirm something, but it can like help rule other things out. So those are the areas that we want to focus on when it comes to iron overload. Um, Iron overload is considered to be present if we have an iron saturation or transferrin saturation greater than 45%. And the main risk factors for iron overload are going to be genetic impairments that are going to impair how we balance iron in the body in that iron recycling system and hepcidin. And then excessive iron intake, a lot of this is from supplements. Chronic alcoholism is another very common one. Loss of a menstrual cycle. And I feel like people do not talk about this enough, but that can lead to iron overload. PCOS, which I have some notes on, we'll go through, or frequent blood transfusions. Like I mentioned, the thalassemia population very commonly gets a lot of blood transfusions. Hopefully, they're taking an iron chelator. I, I mean, I, that would be like pretty crazy if they weren't. Um, but even then, I have clients that maybe they did a ton of blood transfusions when they were younger. They did do iron chelators, but they still struggle with iron overload today. Um, so if we go through first the hemochromatosis, this is what I got the most questions about. This is the genetic component. So it's a genetic disorder that causes the body to absorb way too much iron from diet, and it impairs how we balance it in the body. So we store the excess iron in our tissues skin, heart, liver primarily, pancreas and joints, eventually this is going to lead to damage. Um, and often it's going to show up like liver disease, diabetes. Excess iron is very rough on diabetes and our blood sugar balance because of the oxidative stress it creates in the body. Um, and, you know, we do store it in our pancreas and which releases insulin. So, that genetic uh, disorder is a big one. It's the HFE gene is where the genetic issue lies. And it, what it's doing is it provides instructions for hepcidin, which is the protein that's made in the liver. Um, and it, basically that protein's interacting with our transferrin receptor. It's trying to detect the amount of iron in the body. Remember, if when hepcidin increases, it shuts down iron absorption and movement. When it decreases, it increases iron absorption and movement. When we have mutations in this HFE gene, it doesn't allow hepcidin to increase. So if we're not increasing hepcidin, we are not shutting down iron absorption and movement, and we can and we eventually will get iron overload. There are two variants. I'm not going to go into like a ton of detail because um, I feel like this is probably hard to visualize if, um, and I don't have like a visual for it. But the two major ones are C282Y and H63D. Um, there's like a whole thing. I'm like, oh, if you're homozygous for both, then you're more at risk. I think it's in anyone that has these genotypes is at risk, even if you only have one. Um so if you're homozygous, you have both. If you're heterozygous, you have two. The main reason for this is because it can start with moderate iron overload, but that then leads to more oxidative stress and inflammation in the body, which can exacerbate iron overload in the future. Remember that oxidative stress, that chronic stress, eventually it's going to impact your gut health, your immune system, digestion, your adrenals, your thyroid, your hormones, and all of those things can trickle down and impact your iron further in the future. So I don't think we need to be homozygous with one of these variants in order to be like, oh my gosh, this is a concern for me. I think just having the knowledge, and if you're someone, I've, I've had clients that test for it. Um, these are the two big ones you can test for. You can do like um, 
typically, I think it's 23andMe and then Ancestry. And then you just have to search for the variants once you get your test results. But basically, I do have them test if we are concerned with iron overload, not because it's necessarily going to change what we do, but it's important for them to know that this is probably going to be something that we have to work on long term and that you have to have awareness around. Um, but, I, you know, I don't, it's not essential to fix it, but I think it's helpful to know. Um, when it comes to testing for iron overload and iron status in general, we really want to make sure that we're looking at blood work. Um, I know that there's iron on the hair test, but that is not enough. Uh, you need to compare it to blood work, in my opinion. Um, when I like to look at transferrin saturation or iron saturation, that percentage specifically, um, that is very important when it's above 45%. That's like iron overload. Honestly, if it's creeping above 40% for me, I'm like, we need we're still going to address it. I don't think we need to wait until someone has like extreme iron overload to address their iron status. Um, ideally you're working with a practitioner with this. Uh, but you all, I also like to look at like their full iron panel, serum, iron, iron saturation, transferrin, um, hemoglobin. And then if you can look at copper and ceruloplasmin, that's ideal, but you need someone to help you figure out what those mean. Um, and then I do like to look at CRP, so C-reactive protein, that's systemic inflammation, and then liver enzymes. Those are big ones because you want to have things to monitor. Like iron is important and helpful, but you also want to look at like their inflammatory markers and their liver function for sure. Um, so that's that's like hemochromatosis. Those are the genes. It's basically impacting hepcidin. It's preventing it from working properly. And so we have iron overload. PCOS and iron overload, there's a huge connection with this. Um, there's, I, I have a study linked and it's called PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome and iron overload, a biochemical link and underlying mechanisms with potential novel therapeutic avenues. It is from 2023. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, but they talk about how there's a link with PCOS and hemochromatosis and how the disorders both have a lot of similarities. Like they both have insulin resistance. They both have increased body fat, diabetes, fatty liver, infertility, and high androgens. And something else that I thought was interesting, and this is like right from the article, was uh, they talk about how nonetheless noticeable accumulation of excess iron in the body is a common finding in both disorders, even in adolescence. So people that have hemochromatosis and PCOS both experience them at a young age. Uh, hepcidin, the iron regulatory hormone secreted by the liver, is reduced in both disorders and consequently increases intestinal iron absorption. So in PCOS, I, I mean, I see it all the time in clients. Um, I would say most of my clients with PCOS also struggle with iron overload, and it's because hepcidin is um, reduced. And so they have more, an increased absorption of iron. And a lot of these women don't have regular cycles for a large portion of their lives. And of course, that is also going to increase um, iron overload. And it's also mentions that recent studies have shown that gut bacteria play a critical role in the control of iron absorption in the intestine, as dysbiosis is a common finding between PCOS and hemochromatosis. Changes in bacterial composition in the gut may represent another cause for iron overload in both diseases via increased iron absorption. So basically, um, they talk about how like using iron chelators or probiotics could have like potential therapeutic benefits. Uh, I, I go through a case study that walks through this in the bonus episode for 
iron. Um, so make sure you, you can grab that on Patreon. But yeah, I just was like, PCOS, that's the mechanism. Hepcidin is impacted. We get iron overload. So yes, some of, and some of my clients, PCOS also have the hemochromatosis gene and PCOS is very genetic, but not all of them. And I think that's just such an important thing to note because I've had plenty of them that are like, you know, I, I was put on iron for a while or they took birth control that had iron in it. And it's just like, it's very scary. Um, and then really quick thalassemia. Remember iron, if they're getting a lot of blood transfusions, they can have iron overload. Hopefully they are using uh, iron chelators. They should be if they are getting a lot of blood donations. Um, and I just want like one, I often hear that like this is rare. Hemochromatosis and our iron overload are rare, but thalassemia and primary hemochromatosis are two of the most common genetic diseases in humans. Um, and they both often lead to iron overload and one in 10 women have PCOS. So I'm like, how rare is this? Like, I, I definitely think iron deficiency can exist. I still think the looking at the root, it's not just iron. I think there are other nutrients and foundations that we have to address like diet and stress and digestion and gut health and inflammation. Um, but I, I do think that mild iron overload is an issue for a lot of women and they're being shrugged off because there's just not enough of an understanding around iron and around all these intricacies and iron homeostasis and recycling in the body. Um, other contributors to iron overload, liver disease, I mean, a lot of iron stored in the liver. And if someone's on hemodialysis, those are other two big ones. So areas that I would investigate for iron overload, definitely the blood levels for sure, CRP, liver enzymes. Um, genetic testing I do think is important. Uh, if they're not present, doesn't mean that you don't have iron overload. So just remember that. But I think just knowing that you have this genetic predisposition can help you understand the root cause more. Um, and then things that can help blood donation. A lot of people ask about blood donation. I'm going to say if appropriate, because it's not appropriate for a lot of people. It's very stressful on the body and not everyone is in a good place mineral wise to do it. So if appropriate, and I think people probably donate blood way too soon. You should be focusing on the foundations for a while before you donate blood. Milk thistle and sulforaphane are also very helpful and they can help get iron into ferritin, which is protective because it's not going to be as inflammatory. Quercetin is a natural iron chelator. Um, it inhibits iron absorption and it inhibits ferroportin. So that prevents, you know, iron leaving the tissues and overloading more. Um, castor oil packs, they have ricinolic acid, which has the ability to chelate iron. Turmeric is a natural iron chelator. And then green and black tea. So you can consume that with your meals to reduce iron absorption. If you do, again, this is like iron overload. So this is not like if you are not concerned with excess iron. And please, blood work, blood work. Um, we don't want to guess on this stuff. We want to do testing. And then again, like the bonus episode goes through the different impacts of hormones on iron. I talk about how to get enough iron from food. And then um, I do go through case studies. So lots of fun stuff in the bonus episodes for this. All right, let's do Q&A. How can you test for iron? I didn't bleed for a year and now I'm scared. So I went through those labs. Um, you can get a full iron panel, ask your doctor. And then I would also look at ceruloplasmin because remember that gives an electron to iron to make it get out of the um, stored storage in the liver. Uh, I would also, if, if you're worried about excess iron and you're not totally sure, 
Uh, from there, you could consider doing like C-reactive protein tests, liver enzymes, but you'd want to ask for a full iron panel and look at your hemoglobin too. There were a lot of lab questions. I'm going to say like if you, one, a lot of it was low ferritin. I have super low ferritin, but I eat a lot of air, animal foods. The only iron marker that's low is my ferritin. Um, what does high serum iron and low ferritin mean? We we have to be so careful with obsessing over like certain lab markers. Um, and ferritin, remember, I've talked about this so much in these episodes. Ferritin is supposed to be inside ourselves. When we have an excessive amount outside ourselves, that's not a good thing. That is a sign of inflammation. So if you're concerned, I would be like very careful and make sure that you're talking with your doctor about all this and getting the full testing done. Um, and then just looking at your copper, plasmin, vitamin A status as well. Those are all also really important. Um, but if someone has like all normal, I don't even know what low ferritin means. It could be like what I consider normal ferritin. Um, but it's like, you, you got to keep it in context to yourself. I could never answer any of these questions because I don't know anything else about these people's health history. So it's something that I, I just say, like, you have to take into account all the foundations I've already gone over. Someone did ask about third trimester and low ferritin and like, is iron bisglycinate in beef liver enough to raise iron levels? So if you're pregnant, they should be going by your hemoglobin. I mean, you can do a full iron panel for sure, but you should not be making adjustments based on a low ferritin. You should look at hemoglobin, iron saturation. Um, you can look at your red blood. A lot of times they're looking at your CBC, like red blood cell count and everything. I would not make changes off of one marker. I would ask for more lab testing. How do I know if excess iron is leaving my body? I'm a fast one and my iron on my HTMA was 2.4. So they had high iron on their hair test. A few things I would consider. One, you have to do blood work if you want to assess iron status. So do blood work. Um, I would also look into your water source. Like a well water tends to be higher in iron. It depends on like the piping that you have at home. But I would check those too. But I would do blood work compared to your hair test. There's other markers on the hair test that can make give you some insights into iron as well. Like if you have really high zinc, higher low boron, um, you definitely want to consider those. They can be signs of inflammation, really high chromium. Um, but you'd want to look at those other markers as well. And then blood work. I, you don't know if it's like, that's the only way you're really truly going to know. Um, signs and symptoms that iron is being moved from the body when it's high. I would say like the probably most common ones are histamine symptoms. That comes up for a lot of people. I really like using like quercetin and milk thistle. Um, nettle tea is really helpful too. What is the best time to take iron with or without food morning or night? I recommend whole food supplements because it's not going to lead to any issues. You can take them at any time and it's not going to lead to any nutrient deficiencies like zinc or anything like that. Um, so I would just stick with whole food supplements and they don't have to worry. Um, what's a good ratio to start balancing copper and vitamin A? I'd say it depends on your status. Uh, I don't know what this person's copper and vitamin A levels are or their health history. Like, did you take birth control? Do you have excess copper? Because then you might want to use taurine. Like, there's so many things to consider. And there's not really like a good ratio to start because it just depends on your health history. But I would listen to the copper episode if you're maybe thinking that you could have some copper imbalances. Does high iron affect the menstrual cycle? Yes. It's very common with PCOS. It's going to impact blood sugar, insulin, androgens, 100%. It can affect your menstrual cycle. 
If a blood test comes back saying iron levels are good, but you feel like they aren't, could it mean there's a better way to test or something else may be wrong? I would, I mean, a lot of symptoms of low iron are common with low thyroid as well. So I would look further, maybe do a full thyroid panel or consider like a hair mineral test. What's the best way to raise iron levels without synthetic supplements? I would say like eating iron, retinol, and copper-rich foods. Iron-rich foods are also going to be rich in zinc, which can help with absorption of iron in the gut. And I have a list of all these foods in Patreon. How to get rid of excess iron if you can't donate blood. I'm recovering from HA and I am high in iron. Um, So I would say quercetin, milk thistle, casserole packs things to talk to your doctor about or your dietitian or practitioner but those can all help they're natural iron chelators does iron really play a role in melasma um i'm going to talk about how estrogen impacts hepcidin in the bonus episode but it does it's 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 just it's not just i think people are like it's just iron overload but it's it's how iron impacts estrogen and how excess estrogen can impact iron so it definitely plays a role, but it's not just iron. It's also hormonal. They just like interact together. Is there a correlation between iron supplementation and high cholesterol? There's a causation. Um, iron overload causes inflammation and increases cholesterol. We also see this with zinc supplementation though, because it lowers copper and then that can cause, it causes excess iron and then that can cause um, high cholesterol. So yes, there's definitely a correlation. How to manage low iron in pregnancy. This is one where I really like to focus on, like we want to assess zinc status, copper, and retinol. Um, Those are the big ones I would focus on. And like, if you need to take a whole food supplement, take a whole food supplement. I've had clients that have actually gotten iron infusions um, and because that's like what they felt like was best for them. And it really did help them feel better. And then like they worked on managing their iron status and everything postpartum, but a lot of that had to do with gut health. So sometimes we can't do everything we need to in pregnancy. We need to work on things postpartum as well, but working on zinc, copper, retinol, work with your doctor, share your concerns and like get all your options, the pros and cons. And then I think it's, you got to make the best decision for you. Do you think it's always a copper or ceruloplasmin issue whenever we're dealing with an iron issue? It's like, I don't know is like the short answer. Um, when I think of it's, it's like, yes, copper and ceruloplasmin are so important, but then, you know, that brings up, do we have, is it like a bioavailable copper issue? Is it a retinol issue? Is it maybe we're supplementing with zinc? Maybe we don't have enough zinc to absorb iron in the gut. Is there chronic stress? Is a person eating enough? Do they have a lot of inflammation? How's their gut health? How are their hormones? So I don't think it's, it's like how all those things affect copper and ceruloplasmin, but how they also affect thyroid health. Um, our adrenal health, all those things impacted. So I don't, like, I know a lot of people simplify it to those, but I think it's just because the, at the at the core, like that's the issue, but there's so many other things that impact it. Um, and just someone's health history. I, I feel like people forget about that. We have to look at your health history. How did you eat your whole life? How did your mother eat? What supplements have you taken? What have you not taken? What other deficiencies do you have? What kind of stress have you been through? Um, Where are you at right now with your stress and your thyroid function and your resiliency? Like all these things matter and it's really easy to want to reduce it to something so that you feel like you have an easy answer. But oftentimes it requires like more digging and reflection. Um, 
But those are those are all the questions. That is our Iron Deep Dive part one and part two. I hope that you guys enjoy these episodes. Um, we're, we're adding in an extra episode this season. I was only going to do eight, but Iron turned out so long that it's two. And then next week, we're going to do a deep dive on selenium. Again, if you want the bonus resources, go to patreon.com slash hormone healing RD, and I'll see you in the next episode.